0: It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 46, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. When today's guest, Leslie Cooperman, and her husband, Wes Gerrell, started Prairie Fruits Farm and Creamery in 2005, they didn't expect the goat dairy and creamery to become the primary driver of the farm. But life has a way of providing surprises and new directions. Located just outside of Champaign, Urbana, Illinois, Prairie Fruits Farm and Creamery has over 70 milking doughs providing the basis for their goat cheese and gelato business, which they run in addition to a vigorous on farm dinner enterprise. We discuss the history of the farm and its various production and marketing outlets, including market development, how Leslie and Wes navigated the regulatory landscape in a state that lacked farm creameries at the time, and how the farm has grown and changed to meet the reality of the farm economy while staying true to its principles. And we dig into the nuts and bolts of the record-keeping Prairie Fruits uses to keep on top of the profitability of the various enterprises and marketing outlets, including on-farm sales, farmers markets, CSA, and wholesale sales. We had a great time talking about goats. Leslie brought a ton of experience and insight into the process of running a diversified farm business that is sure to be applicable, whether you're squeezing goats or bunching carrots for a living. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. The BCS two wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction and easy to maintain and repair on the farm gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. bcsamerica.com. Leslie Cooperman, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, Chris.
0: It's so great to have you here, and I really appreciate you taking the time. When you look at all of the stuff that you guys have got going on, the farmstead dairy and the on-farm kitchen and the creamery and the agritourism and the goat cheese and the gelato and the CSA and the farmer's market and selling stuff wholesale, I just look and I go, how in the world do you have time to do a podcast interview?
1: Well, we are very much a seasonal business. A lot of people think that dairy is a product that they can access year round. And, um, in our case, we milk our goats from beginning of March through middle to end of December, and that's based on their natural rhythm of uh, fall breeding, spring kidding, and lactating for about nine and a half to 10 months. So uh, we, we're actually in a slower time of year. We still have a lot of selling opportunities in terms of winter and holiday farmers markets. We're all, we also do on-farm sales. We have our last farm table dinner this coming Saturday at the farm. So it's relatively slow, but there's still a lot going
0: on. So could you give us a little bit of background about Prairie Fruits Farm and Creamery? I you guys have a, a lot going on and and how much how much land are you doing on that? How many goats do you guys have? The other the other pertinent details for kind of giving us the the overall scope of your operation.
1: Sure we uh we've been in business as a commercial grade a dairy and farmstead creamery since 2005 so this is our tenth year as a as a dairy and a creamery uh, we initially purchased seven acres of land uh, all of the land that we purchased and including um, our house and a, a pole barn were owned by a cash grain farmer so when we when we started we were basically wiping the slate clean and, um, taking what had been, um, annual, uh, row cropped land and, um, converting it into perennial agriculture in 2008, uh, we were able to have a friend purchase the, uh, 15 acres adjacent to our property to the East. So we now manage a total of 22 acres, uh, of, the, of the 22 acres, we have an orchard that's about two and a half acres in size. We have eight acres of uh, pasture that's rotationally grazed. We have a two acre prairie and we have about five acres of what was a hayfield that is now more like additional pa- uh, acreage for uh, browsing uh, for the goats.
0: Okay, and and about how many goats do you guys have on the farm?
1: Um, in total, it's about a hundred head, and that includes a little over seventy milking does, replacement yearling does, and um, five breeding bucks, a few retirees, and a couple of hangers-on weathers uh, and pets that just kind of provide entertainment. <laughs>
0: I would think that a hundred goats would be enough entertainment all in, in and of themselves.
1: Uh, yes. They're the, the milkers, they earn their keep, but they can also be um, naughty at times.
0: We had a couple of goats when my daughter was just learning how to talk and we would drive down the driveway and one of, one of poor Isabel's first words is she'd point out the window and she'd go, damn goats. <laughs> and... <laughs> It must, they must keep you busy.
1: Yeah, they they do. I mean, they're they are very uh, clever and always looking for the angle. Uh, but they're also really loving and uh, affectionate, and and we raise them in a um, very intimate way, so they're very used to people, and um, they um, they give back as much as as much as they can. Sometimes cause consternation.
0: The last time I talked to you was was when I was coordinating the presentations for the Moses Organic Farming Conference and you were a soil scientist at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Yeah. How did you how did you get from there to making gelato on your farm from goat's milk?
1: <laughs> well, it's uh, it's been a long journey, but um, in actuality, both my husband, Wes Gerald, and I are both soil scientists uh, by background, and we moved from Madison to uh, Champaign-Urbana in 2003, because he was offered a position at the University of Illinois as a department head. So when when the offer was presented, I said that the only way I was leaving Madison was if we could have a farm. Uh, it was something that we both had wanted to have for a while. And the, the possibility of having a farm uh, so close to town in Madison wasn't wasn't easily attainable. So that, that was one of the conditions and, and by luck, uh, we were able to actually find the property that we currently own, um, and, and purchased it. So, um, we, we both were, uh, um, working, um, as academics for the first several years of, of our farm's life. Uh, we put in our orchard in uh, 2004, we got three, uh, three does and one buck in the summer of 2004. Uh, we had become huge fans of one of the premier uh, and pioneer artisan goat cheese producers in um, Wisconsin, Ann Topham, uh, Phantom Farm. Uh, she has since retired, but she was really one of the first uh women to, um, well, all of them happened to be women, interestingly, uh, to bring uh, French style goat cheeses to the United States back in the early eighties when people didn't even know you could milk a goat, let alone make cheese from it here in the U S so she became my mentor and, um, and I was still commuting to Madison for the first year that we were here. So 2003 to 2004, I was still on the faculty in Madison. Uh, and she she helped us out a, a lot, just in terms of understanding uh, how to care for the goats, as well as the fundamentals of cheesemaking. And um, as as a soil scientist, there are a lot of parallels um, especially the kind of work that I was doing in um, composting and organic organic matter recycling, there's a lot of similar you know they're microbially driven processes and and I found that there was a lot of similarities in cheese making to um, managing a compost pile. I know that sounds insane, but
0: Yeah, you're going to have to go a little bit deeper on that because I'm kind of feeling grossed out right
1: now. (laughs) Well, uh, in the sense that you're you're relying on organisms that you can't even see to orchestrate a process that is going to result in a product at the end that... Uh, doesn't really resemble a whole lot. The, the initial ingredients Um, in the case of compost, you're taking a whole bunch of different organic materials, considered waste and turning them into this beautiful black uh, material that has tremendous benefit as a soil amendment. And in the case of uh, milk, transforming that liquid into a huge variety of cheeses that have very, you know, we make about eight, eight or nine different styles of cheese from goat milk. And, um, they, they don't, and they're, and all of the process that gets from milk to cheese is essentially like farming, farming microbes, different kind of microbes. It's you're, you're using fermentation processes as opposed to like aerobic processes and composting, but it's, um, it's more similar than you would think. And although the the, the hygiene thing is super important in, in cheesemaking.
0: That was actually something that struck me in in one of the interviews that I read. Talked about you being out in the goat barn and changing into your blue coveralls from your white cheesemaking outfit to go out and, and, uh, and assist in a birth with the goats. And I'm curious how you handle that and when you talk about that that hygiene issue moving from what's really a, I mean, a birthing barn is a pretty dirty environment. I mean, it's not, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of fluids and other stuff going on in that. And then you go into the cheese barn. How do you manage that?
1: Well, I mean, we, uh, we really are very, very, um, um, concerned about maintaining strict hygienic conditions in our creamery. And we have, um, we have separate set of clothes that, you know, if I'm going back and forth uh, between the barn and the creamery uh, and I know that I've been like assisting in a birth or something, then I'll just I'll completely change my clothes. If I'm really dirty, I'll even take a shower before I go back into the creamery. Um, but things like that, that especially during that springtime of year when Um, there's a lot of action going on in the barn. There's oftentimes that I'll just have to step away, do what I need to do in the barn. And then once things are stable, completely change clothes or shower and change clothes and go back into the cheesery.
0: Wow. And. And are you the only person working on the farm? Is is Wes still involved with the university, or is he working with you? No,
1: he he's retired. He he retired about five years ago, uh, and I was working part time at the university up until two thousand eight or nine. I think it was. I think it was two thousand nine. Um, and we have a staff. Um, we can't. We don't have. Um, our own children to help with the farm. So we have, uh, I have two people helping to make cheese in the creamery. We have had a full-time executive chef running the kitchen and a sous chef. Uh, we have a full-time herd manager. Uh, we just hired her this past spring. And then we have, um, several part-time people that help, um, people that do part-time milking shifts, um, people that uh, help with the food preparation and um, with serving the food. And then we had an intern this past summer who helped us uh, in the creamery. And then we also had a, a halftime person uh, spinning our, our gelato. Well,
0: that's a real cast of characters. I mean, you've got a... Oh, yeah. It comes off as being much more of a of a, of a smaller you know, one or two person operation, but I mean, you've got a pretty, you, well, I guess with that much going on, um, I didn't realize that you were doing quite so much with the, uh, with the kitchen work. I mean, I knew you had the, the goat cheese and the gelato, um, but it sounds like if you've got a chef and a sous chef, you must have a lot of work going on going into the farm dinners that you guys do.
1: Yeah, well, the the farm dinners started out as something that we did very much part time and it was event driven and it was only like a few of them a year and their popularity just kind of moved us into a more frequent uh, offering, but we, we still do four, 14 of those long, slow food, uh, farm to table meals a year, starting at the end of May into that first week in December. Um, but the other business started coming in terms of other food, uh, opportunities, uh, folks were calling wanting to book private events. We, um, partnered with, uh, some local breweries and wineries to do some, um, food events around the wine and beer. Uh, we have done, um, more informal, no reservations kind of things. Like we do spring breakfast during kidding season. We do, we had done, um, what we called third Friday pop-up where it was basically, uh, once a month, Come on out to the farm on a Friday evening, get some food at really really reasonable inexpensive cost. Listen to some live music and and um and just kind of enjoy the farm and So we did that this year and the year prior uh and all, all of those activities just blossomed and required us to have our chef who started part time after she she had actually started working with me in the Creamery um, before we decided to put in this commercial kitchen, and then she had a child, and and her um, her workload was um, pared down to a half, about a half time position for several years. But then the past two or three years, she's been full time.
0: It really seems like you guys have have kind of looked around and latched onto opportunities as you've grown the farm. Did you start off thinking that you were going to have a goat dairy or did you guys really start off thinking you were going to be a, a fruit tree farm?
1: Well, you know, the name Prairie fruits farm, that was our original name. That was kind of the idea was that we would, Mostly be about the fruit, and we our our goal was to try to grow tree fruits organically, and um and offer opportunities for the community to come out and do you pick, uh, since we're our farm is really close to town, we're um literally. Uh, about four and a half miles to downtown Urbana and about five miles to downtown Champaign. Uh, And uh, the community size combined, the two cities is close to 100,000. It's a university town, but folks are often looking for those kind of opportunities to connect with farms and uh, farmers. We have a fantastic farmer's market in downtown Urbana. So that was the original vision. And my husband grew up on a farm in Oregon, a small family farm uh, that was mostly uh, a well they call them prunes out in oregon um plums uh prune orchard and then they also had peaches and he would go around with his gran- his grandfather to petal peaches when he grew up and he and from the age of 5 onward he was picking picking berries in in the berry fields in uh west of portland in in oregon so that that was his vision was to have a place that was focused around fruit the goats and the cheese was more uh, my idea. But when we when we moved here and we started scheming about what we wanted, I don't think we ever dreamed that we would have um, a dairy milking 70 plus goats and putting out 14,000 pounds of cheese a year and having so many visitors to the farm and farm to table meat. I mean, that none of that was you know, we didn't sit down and say, okay, here's our five-year plan. And everything evolved very organically.
0: How have you made decisions about what to follow as those different opportunities presented themselves?
1: Well, what Wes likes to say that we, um, we are very much of the learn by doing school of, uh, of operations. So we'll try something. And if it resonates with with the community and the customers, then we'll keep doing it. And then, uh, unfortunately, neither he nor I come from a very strong business background. So um, the the decisions are not motivated primarily by the, the economics. It's often like, oh, wouldn't this be cool? And oh, people seem to like this. And oh, let's do this. And that's kind of how it works.
0: Do you guys after the fact sit down and do some financial oh, analysis yeah. and oh, yeah. okay? Yeah, we're getting okay.
1: <laughs> we're getting better. I mean, we have to. I mean, it has to we we have learned a lot over the years and uh, and it can't just be because it feels right, it has to it has to make economic sense as well.
0: I would think that a lot of the things that you're doing would be real challenges from a regulatory standpoint. I mean you moved from Wisconsin to Illinois and started making cheese, which is not the direction you're supposed to go <laughs> when you want to make cheese. And um, I, I would just, I mean, the all of those things—the creamery, the um, the the on farm dinners—are they're not things that that Illinois must deal with on a regular basis from a regulatory standpoint. How have you how have you negotiated that process?
1: It was a really tough go. Initially, um, we, when we decided that we were going to explore what it would take to become licensed as a dairy and creamery, we had, we invited the, um, in, in Illinois, it's the department of public health who regulates, uh, dairies and, and, uh, and, and dairy products. So we invited our, our regional, uh, regulator to come, to the farm to talk to us about what it would take to, uh, become licensed. And he was highly skeptical that you could have, um, dairy barns and a milking parlor and a creamery in the same location without killing people. And we had to convince him that, that yes, it could be done, that there are lots of other places and other states that are doing this very thing. Uh, And um, uh, we educated ourselves first so that when they would come back and say, well, you can't do this, you can't do that, we could present them with um, cases of where it had been done and had been done safely and under under, uh, a regulatory framework. And so... Uh, we, we just decided, okay, we're going to do this and we're going to work with the regulator. We're not going to antagonize him. And it happened. It took, it took several months to go back and forth on our plans. And then uh, we had our equipment had to be inspected. And that was about, that took about four visits before our equipment was approved. But I found that once our equipment was approved and once we started making product and once we started demonstrating that our product was really clean, uh, and that in fact we go above and beyond what's required of us from a regulatory standpoint, I think we've won the the respect of of the regulators and they um, they actually kind of hold us up to other folks who are considering doing something like this as an example of of a of a creamery and a dairy that that they think is doing a good job.
0: So when you were going through that process of educating yourselves about other operations that were doing the same things, those were, those were operations that were outside of Illinois. Yeah. And then, and then you were having to kind of come back and, and explain to the Illinois regulators how, how their, how those things worked and how that related to the laws in Illinois. Cause I, I'm, I mean, I'm willing to bet there wasn't actually a law in the books in Illinois that said, you can't have a creamery and a milking operation in the same place.
1: Yeah, they I mean, they didn't. They, they, you're right. There was no precedence. We were the first farmstead uh, creamery farmstead, meaning having milk from our own herd to be used in, in making the dairy value added dairy products. That, so they didn't have a. a um an example in Illinois for themselves to look at, and neither did we, um, all we could do is, uh, and and many of our examples came from Wisconsin. It was just easier uh, to show them examples from Wisconsin, but we also uh, visited places in, um, in Indiana and and, in Vermont uh, and California. And so we could kind of draw on other examples from other parts of the country.
0: And then it was just a matter of, of, working with the regulators to say, this is possible. What do we need to do to, to make you guys happy?
1: Yeah. And, and, um, their, their modus operandi is in the case of the equipment, you buy it, we'll look at it and we'll tell you if we accept it or not. So they put the the burden of, of risk on, on the, on the producer, uh, and what we had to do was to go back to, uh, in in, the, in particular, the pasteurizer manufacturer and say, all right, uh, will you make the changes that the regulators are requiring if uh, if if they ask us to make these changes? And they said yes. And um, and so that's how we were able to to get Get it eventually approved. Our inspector was uh, we we actually imported our our VAT pasteurizer from the Netherlands. and um the uh, inspector, it turned out, was not a big fan of of non u s. manufactured equipment. So he already had a bias <laughs> going into it.
0: not only were you were you doing a farmstead dairy and being somewhat organic in in Illinois, but now you were going to get. Equipment from the Netherlands, I mean, my God, how risky could you get <laughs>
1: yeah, right, yeah, well, at the time, there was very little options for small scale uh dairy equipment uh in the u s that that was really made well for small operations our Our cheese vat is a fifty gallon vat, and um um you know it doesn't seem like it's that long ago, two thousand two thousand four whatever, but um At that time, there were most of the manufacturers who were making small scale equipment in the U.S. were just basically taking the large scale equipment and downsizing it. And it's not it doesn't work the same. It's not like you can just size it down, Um, whereas in, in Europe, they're used to smaller batch production and they had equipment that was designed for that
0: it's one of the things I find really frustrating with most things having to do with food safety regulations. And I don't know if if this exists in other, in other regulatory arenas, but this idea that like, okay, we're going to give you some sort of, of an outcome that you're going to create, but we're not going to tell you what requirements you need to meet. We'll tell you if you've met those requirements, you know, it's, it's like in the, you know, in the gaps regulations for, for fresh produce, they, they say you're supposed to do things like clean your evaporator fans on a, on a regular basis, often enough to prevent them from becoming a food safety hazard. And it's like, okay, somebody just tell me how often I need to clean my fans. Yeah. I can do that, you know? And it sounds like you ran into a similar thing with this, with these equipment issues but here you are. I mean, the, you're not talking about just being able to access another market, you know, or or one or two procedures to figure out. You're talking. I mean, I can't imagine that a vat pasteurizer from the Netherlands is an inexpensive investment. No, no. That must have been an insanely frustrating process for you.
1: It, it was pretty frustrating. And I found myself having to bite my tongue a lot. Uh, but we did at the end of the day. Our regional inspector or our our regional regulator was a pretty reasonable guy. And he could see that we were making a good faith effort to do the right thing. Uh, and he actually helped facilitate that interaction between the equipment inspector and us to eventually come to an agreement that the that the equipment was safe And that we were not going to be creating these horrible biofilms that would result in contamination that would kill people.
0: And then, of course, once you guys got done with that process, you decided to make unpasteurized cheeses in addition to your pasteurized cheeses.
1: Yes. And that, um, um, that is allowed in the US. Uh, you can make pa- raw milk cheeses from uh, as long as the cheeses are aged sixty days or longer. Uh, we did have a little bit of of back and forth discussion. With our regulators, and we've always been very upfront. They don't like secrets that's that was another thing that I found is they really don't like to find out after the fact so we're we're often very proactive in saying, "Hey, you know we're going to do this and um, and here's here's why, and these are the styles of cheese and um there was and what's so interesting to me is that although they regulate cheese and dairy products, their understanding of cheese is so primitive uh, that it it actually is a real hindrance in in getting them to understand what the relative risks are associated with different cheese styles because they don't really even understand cheese and the, you know, the likelihood that cheese, certain cheeses will or won't be more conducive to harboring pathogens. So I found, you know, as a scientist, I could easily find data and studies and show them to them that said, hey, you know, I can make this style of cheese with raw milk and and here's why. And here are other examples of this style of cheese from raw milk and the incidence of foodborne illnesses next to nothing. And uh, here's our protocol for how we deal with uh, the aging of the cheeses. And um, they slowly uh, have come come around. And uh, the the big thing, you know, with the Food Safety Modernization Act now is um, FDA now has a wider jurisdiction on facilities like ours uh, in the past, since we are uh, what's called a manufactured milk processing facility. And we don't do a whole lot. We do some out-of-state shipment, but very little. 98% of what we produce stays within the state of Illinois. Um, we, we really weren't of concern to the FDA. But now with with FSMA and their concerns over raw milk cheese uh, and raw milk in general, they have a very negative attitude toward raw milk. Uh, they are, um, and they, and they um, have a bigger budget to... Uh, enforce their perceived rules. Um, they they have the FDA has been here several times in the past few years taking samples of our raw
0: milk cheese. That's got to be a little bit frightening, or maybe not. Maybe when they're taking those samples, you just look at it and go, "We know it's good, and it's not going to be an issue." I, I,
1: I do actually have a lot of confidence, and and if I don't have, we do a lot of our own in-house testing. There's um, a lot of tools on the market now that enable us to it, relatively inexpensively test for pathogens in-house um, and test the cleanliness of our milk at, before it even goes into making the raw milk cheese. So if we have any concern that there was a problem with a particular batch of milk, we, uh, we have a record from our own in-house testing of that milk. And then we will also send independent samples of cheese to an outside lab to verify that there's no problems. So I do have a lot of confidence and, I, and, and they found absolutely nothing. So they, they've collected samples from us for um, three years in a row and we've had no, no pathogens to speak of.
0: How does the insurance agent who provides you your liability insurance, how do they think about the raw milk cheeses?
1: You know, they haven't they haven't expressed any concern about it. They know that we make raw milk cheese. Uh, We have we have a really comprehensive product liability insurance. And um, they somebody else asked me that Um, we were giving a workshop here at the farm on on beginning dairying and somebody asked about how do we get insured if we're making raw milk cheese and our our insurance company has never expressed concern about that
0: that's really nice. My insurance company kind of freaked out that we were even doing vegetables. They thought that that whole idea of food for people was just something that maybe we should be thinking twice about. So tell me some more about the dinners and some of the the regulatory hurdles that you've run into with doing the on farm food service. Do you guys have a a restaurant license? Are you serving people at tables or is it picnic style? How does that all fit together?
1: Uh, we are, our kitchen is licensed. Uh, it's a different entity that license kitchens in, in our County. It's um, it's our County health department. They are um, actually more strict than the state inspectors who ins- inspect our, 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 dairy and our creamery, if you can believe that. Um, and so we're, we are um, we have to be permitted every year we have an inspection every year. Uh, and, um, and then they issue a report just like a restaurant would get. Um, but because we're not within the city limits, there are some, a a few things that, uh, restaurants that are within city limits have to adhere to that we don't have to adhere to. But I will say that, you know, I've been in many kitchens and, um, and our chef who comes from a culinary background or has worked in many kitchens and she runs a very clean operation. Uh, so, uh, the, the permit that we have through our County, um, allows us to prepare and serve meals to the general public.
0: But do you guys have sit down table service? Uh,
1: yeah, well, it's, it's, um, the, um, The farm to table dinners that we do, the dinners on the farm series, we call it, is a um, it's a single menu and everyone eats the same menu. uh, And it's a five course, four hour slow food meal. So guests arrive in the late afternoon and we have several hors d'oeuvres for them. Then we take them on a tour of the farm and then um, after about an hour and a half, we're sitting down to the first course and <clears throat> the event starts at four. And then it's, it's typically ending at about eight, eight o'clock in the after, in the evening. So um, and at, for those dinners, everyone sits at long tables. It's communal, uh, it's convivial. And the 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 model is um, very, very much in the spirit of slow food, uh, eating at one long table. Um, the other events that we do that are more impromptu and no reservations, we do set up tables. We have uh, we created a dining space that also fronts as um, a meeting space and a classroom uh, when it's not being used for food service. That's inside our barn, and then when the weather's nice, we set up tables outside.
0: I'm thinking that even just the chairs and the tables alone uh, must represent a pretty significant investment, and and adding in barn space or dedicated space to that. Um, Is it, is that, are the, are the on-farm dinners, the, in their, in their various formats, is that something that is a profitable enterprise for you guys?
1: It is profitable. We, um, our our chef is actually going to be um, leaving us at the end of this season. She's she's been with us for nine years and she's decided that she just wants to take a break from cooking. Um, so we're we're really rethinking uh, what we want to do with our kitchen space and what what style of food service we want to offer to the community. Uh, our dinners are very much at the high end of the of the spectrum in terms of the cost per person it's $125 for the for the five course four hour meal and that's exclusive of of wine or beer we do have a liquor license also that people can buy wine or beer from us but we also let people bring their own so we're thinking about different ways to still continue to Offer food to folks that want to come out and and have a meal on the farm, but maybe in in a not quite so formal way Uh, and, and looking at different scenarios that would maintain profitability, but maybe not that we wouldn't necessarily have. Uh, so much tied up in our own uh, fa- on-farm staff that execute the meals, maybe bringing, because we do already bring in guest chefs, mainly from Chicago, uh, but some local far- local chefs from around here as well. So we're thinking about more of that kind of model uh, for the for the food on the farm in the future.
0: Leslie, we're going to take a break here and get a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back. Okay. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost. When you talk to Carl Hammer, the company founder, he'll remind you that potting soil is a set of promises about a product that has to do a really hard job produce a healthy plant in a restricted media volume. When I started farming, I focused on the cheapest ingredients I could get so that I could make my own potting soil. But as my farm grew and as I saw the challenges that we were having getting great plants out of the greenhouse, I gave it a second look and I came to the fairly obvious conclusion that. Success in the greenhouse depends on the success of the plants that are growing there and that just like in the rest of farming especially organic farming that success rests on the stuff that the plant is growing in the cost of your potting soil isn't insignificant but it's a small cost relative to plant material heat and labor and if the media fails the rest of the enterprise is a sunk cost so get the media that works year after year after year and grow some great transplants VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheeled tractors are often mistaken for just a rototiller, but they are truly superior pieces of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are a way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability that every farm needs. I've worked with BCS tractors for over 24 years and I wouldn't consider anything else for my small tractor needs. And I'm not the only fan. More than 1.5 million people in 50 countries have discovered the advantages of owning Europe's most popular two-wheeled tractor. And these really are small tractors with the kinds of features found on their four-wheeled cousins and a wide array of equipment. Power harrows, rotary plows, flail mowers, snow throwers, sickle bar mowers, chippers, log splitters, Ah, you name it. You can probably put it on a BCS. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. bcsamerica.com. All right. And we're back with Leslie Cooperband from Prairie Fruits Farm and Creamery, which really ought to be Prairie Fruits Creamery and Farm. Um <laughs> Just a little bit of business advice there for you, Leslie. Just free on the side, um, <laughs>
1: right. token of
0: my appreciation for being on the show, um, Leslie. With the relatively small acres that you have and and a hundred goats, I'm guessing that managing the feed isn't something that you're doing just from your own acreage.
1: That is correct. We um, we were able to pa- when we when we started the um, the dairy herd. Uh, and our first year that we were licensed as a commercial dairy and farmstead creamery in 2005, we milked um, 25 goats and we had more than ample acreage to pasture them. Um, we had initially envisioned having our herd and all of our land be certified organic. And we were purchasing uh, a grain ration from Wisconsin, uh certified organic grain ration, but that, that proved to be uh, unsustainable in a number of ways. So we decided that we would find a local feed mill that could develop a ration for us and support our local uh grain economy, even though it's not organic. Uh, and, um, and that would be, uh, more acceptable to us and more cost effective. Uh, we also had to find other farmers to purchase hay from because we definitely didn't have enough seven acres and, and, and three of that being orchard, uh, we definitely didn't have enough land to grow our own hay. So um, we were able to find between the Amish community to the South of us and just other folks around here who uh, mostly do cash grain agriculture, but they do, there are a few remnant alfalfa fields around. Um, we were able to to source uh, all of our, our hay and our grain locally. And um then, as our herd expanded and um, we added the 15 acres to the east and put in a five acre hay field, we also at that time rented an, about 20 acres to the south of us from a neighbor farm to grow our own hay. So we were self-sufficient in hay for several years and then decided that the economics and the headaches of the baler are constantly breaking. And I don't know if you've ever made hay, but um, it is a extremely uh, frustrating kind of enterprise, <laughs> especially in the humid, humid Midwest, trying to get it, cut it at the right time and uh, um rake it and get it up before it rains again um is is really challenging uh so we we decided to get out of the hay business and um that was uh i think 2 or 3 years ago and now we're back to purchasing local hay and purchasing local grain and we have um about 13 acres for the goats to pasture and browse.
0: So how did you end up making that decision? I mean, with with most farms, there's a real desire to to do everything. Um, You know, you want to, you know, raising your own hay has, I guess, sort of fits into that mystique of the closed loop on your farm or the self sustaining farm operation. Um, Did you guys do an economic analysis that said hey, we're spending a lot more money raising hay than we would be if we bought it? Or was it a was it a lifestyle decision? How did you come to that?
1: It, it was definitely an economic decision. We we did an economic analysis. And part of it, too, was, you know, if we were just a dairy and a creamery um, and we had access to additional land and in terms of renting, um, it it may have made more economic sense. But at the same time that we're scaling up the, the dairy and the creamery, we're adding these other enterprises and the time to manage hay fields properly, the time to deal with equipment that was constantly breaking or even just having enough money to purchase a baler that wasn't 25, 30 years old. Um, and you know, there, there's, it, it wasn't, although it was looking at the costs and, um, and revenue offset by purchasing our own, hay, you know, doing that cost benefit analysis, it was in the context of taking on this commercial kitchen and, um, farm to table meals and, and things like that. So, um, I think it could have played out differently if we were really just about the dairy.
0: Right. But you've got the dairy, the cheesery, the gelato, the dinners, the farmer training, the orchard. I mean, all of these different aspects. I would imagine that the record keeping around that has got to be some kind of a nightmare.
1: It it has been and and um, you know record keeping is often the Achilles heel of many farmers uh, and certainly we're no exception. But we just we had to get better at it. We had to really be good about um, how we enter information in our in our bookkeeping software. Uh, we started collecting a lot more data on. Uh, we started doing uh, what's called DHI, dairy herd improvement. So we actually know how much each of our does is producing every month, what the butter, fat and protein content of her milk is, what her somatic cell count is uh, so that we can make informed decisions about how to, what genetics to keep in our herd, what genetics to move on down the line. Um, and with the other enterprises, we just, even though our, our initial drivers were more about, oh, this is something that we're really passionate about. At some point, we really kind of crossed over the threshold of, and it, I think the thing, one of the things that forced the issue was uh, once I I left the university job, and then once Wes retired from the university, not having any off farm income, uh, really forced us to be much more on top of the economics of these different enterprises because and and you know we have we we strive to pay our staff a living wage at least you know agriculturally speaking they're not they're not having a living wage in terms of like a high tech job or something but we offer we offered health insurance before the Affordable Care Act came on the board and we just, you know, we, we had certain goals that we wanted to achieve. Uh, and we had it, we had to make things work financially. That's not to say that because we're such a hyper-seasonal business that there's times of the year that, you know, cash flow is really tough. Um, it still is, but We're we're just a lot more aware of the economics of of what we do than we than we were when we started 10 years ago.
0: I'd really like to dig into the nuts and bolts of how you do that financial record keeping for all of these different enterprises.
1: Okay, well, we I don't know how familiar you are with QuickBooks, but within QuickBooks, you can actually have what are called classes Uh, so you can designate a class to every single either revenue source or cost. And then you can do profit and loss by class. And so um, we have a class for cheese, gelato, kitchen, education. And then I think we have kind of a catch all for uh, general, general farm kind of things that don't fall into any of those particular categories. And by um, by segregating our expenses and our revenues by class, that helps us to evaluate each of those enterprises.
0: Yeah, that class tool in QuickBooks, I think, is one of the most underutilized um, resources in that program, you know, which I think QuickBooks suffers from a lot of feature bloat. But that's one that really is something that um I feel like almost everybody would benefit from from doing some exploration and just thinking creatively about how you can make use of of being able to not just say that that this is a you know, this is an expense for in your case, it might be, you know, chemicals on the farm. Um, and maybe you're, maybe you're then saying, well, geez, these chemicals are going into being sanitizers in the, in the cheesery. These ones are going in to be cleaning supplies in the kitchen, for example. Is that, that's a way you would use that? Yep,
1: exactly. Yeah. And, and really it was our accountant, um, who showed us that we could do that on QuickBooks.
0: Do you work with an accountant on a regular basis or are you guys handling the, the financial record keeping in house?
1: Um, we realized that, um, what Wes was doing a lot of the books with, we, then we would have our, um, an accountant come once a month to kind of do payroll and a few other tax sales tax and payroll tax and things like that. But we realized, uh, Uh, two years ago that we weren't getting the service that we needed. And we hired a new accountant who then really helped us take a a hard look at our books and reorganize using this class structure. And now we have a person who is more of a bookkeeper who comes once a week to basically help keep us on track and enter enter, um, payroll and and submit certain taxes and, um, uh, pay, pay the bills. And then Wes does some of the other bookkeeping things. And then our accountant just kind of keeps a watchful eye because the accountant is expensive. They're very good, but they're expensive. Um, and then they prepare our, um, our federal and state taxes, um, once a year.
0: Right. So you don't just have, you know, what's, what somebody might call a farm accountant or a tax accountant. You've really got an accountant who's, who's much more involved in your business throughout the course of the year.
1: Yeah. Because, you know, we're a business and I mean, we're a farm, but we are a business and, and because it's a, it's a pretty complicated business and um, in, you know, Wes and I, that's not our, that's not something that we would prefer to spend time doing if we had our choice i'd much rather be with the goats or making cheese or or selling selling our products and um he'd much rather be outside doing stuff so it's it's a it's a real struggle for both of us and so we decided we've got to acknowledge that this is not our strong suit and we've got to bring in some help especially You know, there's times of the year, like in kidding season in the spring where we're just going um, 16 hours a day and babies being born left and right and going on like four or five hours of sleep. And and yet there's still bills to be paid and staff to be paid and and uh, having that outside person who comes in is just a lifesaver.
0: How long did you have to look to find somebody that was able to provide you with the level of service that you needed and, and was really able to understand your business. That's something I feel like I, I had a hard time with when I, when I worked with accountants, getting somebody who really, who really got what we were doing and didn't just say, Oh, you're a farm, you know, but understood that we were, you know, we were a diversified vegetable farm with a lot of different enterprises and a lot of different sales outlets that we, that all needed to be managed in different ways.
1: Yeah. I I think, um, It takes a willingness on their part to be educated uh, about the kind of what I would call this is this is really a modern farm and it's a farm that um, is not a commodity farm. And around here, that's the predominant experience that people have is is agribusiness or commodity farms. But if they have a willingness to understand it and at the end of the day, it's it's more the the businessness of it if that's a word <laughs> is is more um m- more prominent than than i think we would like to admit Uh, And and that's the part that they really can sink their teeth into and and enjoy and help and help us get over the hurdle. The accountant that we have, uh, it turns out he and his wife have um, have their own goats and they have a a big family and they're kind of a self-sufficient farm. And so in a lot of ways, he he could. He could get what it is that we're doing, even though we're doing it on a commercial scale. Uh, and he, we found him just, you know, friend of a friend kind of thing. And then our bookkeeper was recommended from our accountant. So um, that's how that came together.
0: Somebody that the accountant obviously feels comfortable working with. Yes. So you guys have a number of different sales outlets. In addition to all of these production enterprises, you do, you sell the cheeses and the gelatos are going, uh, you sell them to stores and I think restaurants you do the CSA uh, where you're providing goat cheese and gelato on a weekly basis to folks. And then you've also got going to farmer's market. How are you, how are you tracking all of that? And the, those enterprises through QuickBooks
1: when we, incur sales we can attribute it to a different location uh so we can even attribute it to specific farmers markets because chicago has a different sales tax than uh the rest of the state um, we just when we enter our sales we um account for the specific location whether it's on farm uh, urbana farmers market chicago farmers market uh, CSA and, um, and that, that's basically how we keep track of it through QuickBooks.
0: Okay. And, and what, what function in QuickBooks are you using for that? Is that still the class function or is that yes. based on, okay. Okay. So you're using the classes for the, for the production enterprises as well as for the sales enterprises. Yes. Great. So can you tell us a little bit more about your marketing strategy for your, for the products?
1: Our our cheese is about 50 50 wholesale retail and within the wholesale realm, we sell mostly direct to our wholesale customers. We do have uh, a a couple of wholesale customers who are cheese shops that then sell to restaurants. And that's particularly in the Chicago area. Uh, But most of our, our Wholesale customers are either restaurants direct or specialty food stores or cheese shops directly. Uh, And then our um, direct retail to individual customers is through the two farmers markets that we do and through our CSA and uh, through on-farm sales.
0: Okay. Could you tell us a little bit more about the CSA program? Cause to me, like a gelato CSA sounds like pretty much heaven.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really, it's a really nice, uh, way to interact with a customer base that we wouldn't necessarily, um, have. So we have, uh, and, and, um, we use, uh, our website is, uh, the platform is designed by small farm central. I don't know if you're familiar with them, uh, but they, um they specialize in um CSA farms and so we're able to offer kind of an a la carte um several options within each type of product that we have. So with the cheese, there's like four different options. The gelato, there's two options. We partnered with a baker to offer bread as well. Uh, This coming year, we're looking at partnering with um, a a diversified livestock farmer who raises, it's all pasture raised um, animals from chicken to turkey to beef and lamb and pork. Uh, And so um, people can decide within each type of product what options they want. And if they aren't interested in cheese but just gelato, they can do just gelato. If they're interested in cheese and not gelato, they can do that as well. If they just like our fresh Chev and they don't like the Bloomy Ryan cheeses, they can just get Chev. And then we put all the put that all together. And then I, I go to, um, uh, the pickup locations when, when they happen. Uh, we have two in Bloomington normal, which is just West of us. Uh, and we used to do a farmer's market there. So this is kind of their only opportunity to get, to get our products in that area. Um, and, um, it's uh, it's a really I, I really enjoy the CSA because we um we get to provide products to people that normally wouldn't have access to it. And they and, you know, having that that income come in in the winter is extremely helpful.
0: So that's something that you're doing year round.
1: Well, it's a seasonal thing. Uh, we're looking at maybe offering a winter version of it we're also there's a a vegetable farmer uh who we're friends with um just uh to the east of us who does um a lot of ex, uh winter growing of um mostly um leafy leafy greens and um they do a buying a pre-order buying uh, club in the winter. And we're looking at piggybacking with them to offer the cheese because we can freeze our chev and have that available in the winter. Uh, we're also experimenting with bringing in some winter cow milk so that we can make some cheese in the winter uh, and have that available to our customers that we're finding that it's harder and harder to make the income that we need to make in a 10 month period that can sustain us for the time of year that um, we're not actively making milking goats and making cheese. Because
0: you still got to feed the goats and you still got to yep. buy groceries. Yes, yeah. we
1: do. And, and we still have, you know, there's there's still fixed costs that have to be paid.
0: When you guys started marketing at the farmer's market with the cheeses, you said that, you know, back 10 years ago, there just wasn't a whole lot of awareness about the different kinds of cheese. How did you go about developing that marketplace?
1: It's really interesting that um, with Champaign-Urbana being a university town that you would think that there would be a pretty educated Population as it as it relates to food and in particular European cheeses, Uh, but what we found um, when we put up our little tent um, in the fourth row at the Urbana Farmers Market was people were freaked out about goat cheese. They were actually fearful of it, Um, and we had to do a lot of sampling, a lot of offering tastes. To get people to overcome their fear and, and taste it. Uh, but we gradually gained the, um, the clientele and people can, started coming back. And then we expanded our repertoire to include bloomy Ryan cheeses that following year. And again, you know, we had to get people to taste and, um, and now I find that people are very, very eager to try. We we put out a new cheese. We actually made two new cheeses this year, uh, one of them being a washed rind cheese, which is uh, a very pungent, uh, very full flavored kind of cheese. And I thought, oh, you know, Chicago, they'll have no problem with this, but Urbana is going to be totally afraid of it and really there I've been really impressed with people's willingness to try and um and and actually like what they're tasting
0: and at what point did you decide to introduce the gelato line because again goat's milk gelato is not something that I would exactly well it's not the first thing that pops to mind when I think of gelato or goat's milk
1: right so as we as we were we we had um we did a major expansion in our herd uh, in 2008 and we actually expanded our milking parlor, uh, doubled the size of our milking parlor. Uh, And, and um, the following year, 2009, we started uh, bringing in sheep milk from an, an Amish farm. We helped them get licensed as a sheep dairy and then we started buying their milk. So we had times of the year that, Uh, Our combined milk production from our own goats and from the sheep and and then turning that sheep milk 100 gallons a week into cheese was getting very close to the capacity of our of our creamery in terms of production and aging space. So we were looking for another value added product that we could make from seasonal surplus milk. And with the license uh, of of a manufactured milk processing facility, we could make ice cream. Uh, and we wanted to, um, make a healthful kind of frozen dessert and gelato is actually more healthful than ice cream. Uh, and, um, Wes and I went to Italy in, uh, the winter of 2011 to, uh, gelato university in Bologna and spent a week there learning how to make gelato so that we could then come back and, and from scratch, make our own gelato base. Uh, and then, and develop a line of flavors. We do traditional flavors like vanilla, chocolate, hazelnut, pistachio. Um, but we also really emphasize the local flavors using local fruits, local nuts, local herbs, our own honey. Um, we, we do like a honey chev gelato, for example. Um, and um, and uh, it turns out that goat milk makes a beautiful gelato because the fat is naturally homogenized. And so it tastes very creamy, but the overall fat content of gelato relative to American ice cream is about half the fat content.
0: Are are you guys using your own fruits with the gelato?
1: Yes. When we, when we have fruit, we definitely are using our fruit. That's been challenging past four or five years with fruit here in the, in the Midwest with climate, uh, variation. But when we have fruit, when we have peaches and um, uh, berries, we've definitely used our own fruit in in uh, production.
0: Now, when we were chatting before the show, you mentioned that you guys have kind of an interesting arrangement in your orchard with some beginning farmers taking advantage of that resource that's, that's difficult for you guys to manage. Um, and it's interesting to me that you you talked about getting an Amish farmer started with the sheep dairy and I know that you guys have uh, done a lot of work with farmer training. Can you talk a little bit about, about how you're involved in getting more farmers onto the land?
1: Yeah, well, in the case of the the two women that have uh, taken on managing the orchard, they started this year. One of them is actually one of our cheese makers, and um, the other one is a, a longtime friend of hers who is an amazing baker. Uh, and um, they came to us with a with a proposal last year that um, that we would um, share in the cost of inputs. And we would continue to manage the orchard organically, even though our land is no longer certified organic, we managed it organically Uh, and um, they would provide all the labor, most of the labor. uh, And then um, we would share in the revenue from the sale of fruit or um, fruit related products. And um, so this year was the first year that that we tried it. And we actually had a good, pretty good year in terms of peaches and apples not so great on blackberries, but peaches and apples and some pears uh, were all really good this year. Uh, And um, they, they put in a a lot of work. They had really grand ideas about adding new plantings. And it was really good that we didn't do that because um, it, you know, they got to see how much work to actually have a go, you know, a, a real legitimate go at managing even though it's a really small orchard, uh, it's still to do to do the pruning and managing pests and diseases and all that kind of weed control. It's all it's very time consuming. So um, I think they they had a very successful year. The woman who was a baker turned a lot of the seconds and thirds into incredible baked goods that they sold at the farmer's market. And um, uh, I, I would call it a success Uh, and, um, and, um, and so that, that, that's, and we're, we're looking forward to next year. We're actually going to, in a few minutes, going to be meeting with the two of them to talk about what we hope to achieve for next year. Uh, and, um, and the other farmers that, that we, have encouraged uh, the organic vegetable farmer who I mentioned earlier that was in partnership with the land connection she was been renting an acre of our land uh, and growing her own vegetables and she just added laying hens and she raised a few hogs this year too because this year with the wet spring really tough for a lot of the farmers in our area some were we were fortunate because we're on a tiny bit of a rise here but a lot of people were just totally flooded out Uh,
0: it was a really rough year in the Midwest for vegetables. Yeah. Unless you were way up North.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's kind of what we do and we see the future in, in helping, um, young farmers get started that don't have their own land, uh, that have a great idea and really want to test concept, um, and do it on land, you know, that we have available, that's not being used to its fullest capacity.
0: I just really like that and especially with with what you did with the orchard, you know, kind of taking this underutilized resource on your farm and and letting somebody see if they can if they can really utilize it. Um what a what a great thing to do with you know sort of those those false starts that you might have had early on in your in your farming career.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it it's really it makes us really happy to see all the fruit coming off of it and, and them learning and um, they, they had their own stand at the market in the fall and uh, people knew that, it, you know, that the fruit was from Prairie Fruits Farm, but um, they managed the selling of it and the market, you know, they made cider, made a lot of cider because uh, we had a lot of seconds, um, but the cider was
0: amazing. With that, Leslie, I'd like to turn to our lightning round that we do at the end of every show and hit you with a few short questions that don't necessarily have any relationship to each other. Okay. All right. What's your favorite tool on the farm?
1: My favorite tool, uh, my own hands,
0: (laughs) (laughs) which probably get a lot of use. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, and how about your favorite resource when you, when you don't have the information readily available to you?
1: Um, I actually really love, um, Gianicles Caldwell has a number of great online resources, uh, pertaining to farmstead creameries and cheese making, um, the, uh, small, is another great resource that I, I like to use, um, uh, Peter Dixon, he's a cheese consultant, also has a great website with a lot of good information.
0: And I'm just curious along that same note, when you guys found the gelato school in Bologna, Italy, rough place to have to go for a week. Um, how did you how did you find that?
1: Well, we bought a um, gelato spin, uh, gelato machine, a, a spinner um, from this company, Italian company Carpegiani, and they're they're headquartered in Bologna. And um, with the purchase of the equipment, they offered uh, one uh, uh, place at their weeklong gelato school. And okay, we could do it either in North Carolina or Bologna. So you, you decide, right? Which would you want? Yeah,
0: that's kind of a no brainer. Right. <laughs> Nothing against those listeners in North Carolina. Just nope. be clear about that. Okay. Um, if you could choose one, what farmer superpower would you choose?
1: Um, not being tired.
0: Nice. I like <laughs> that. <laughs> All right. And if, and finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be?
1: Um, that it's often better to not go chasing after the next great idea, but to try to focus on what you're doing and really
0: master it. Leslie, thank you so much for making the time today to to talk to me on the Farmer to Farmer podcast. You're very welcome. It was fun. All right, so wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 46 of the Farmer to Farmer Podcast, and that you can find the notes for this show at farmer to com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Cooper Band. That's C O O P E R B A N D. I'll be in Bonner Springs, Kansas. That's just outside of Kansas City, Missouri or as those of us who are hip to the Missouri scene like to say KCMO on January 25th and 26th with Cultivate Kansas City to talk about making your farm work for you, where we're going to dig into how to increase your farm income, monitor farm performance, improve control over your time, respond to unexpected changes, and increase your capacity to maintain and reinvest in your farm operation. Your farm should work for you in addition to you working for your farm. More information available at CultivateKC.org. And you know, we wrapped up those employment workshops that I've been talking about for the last several episodes, but we've got another one on the schedule now in Grays Lake, Illinois, on February 17th, 2016. Employees make it possible to get more done, you know, but managing workers and their work takes dedicated time, energy, and processes. And I'm going to share what I've learned in 25 years of farming and working with farmers about how to make that work for you. More information, including schedules, registration, and other information at purplepitchfork.com slash boss. If you enjoy the podcast, I think you would also enjoy my weekly email newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga. The Flying Rutabaga runs the gamut from practical templates for delegation to guidelines for watering transplants. You can sign up at farmer to farmer or purplepitchfork.com. I've heard from several people that the farmer to farmer podcast has been a topic of conversation at conferences around the country. It means so much to me that so many people are choosing to listen to the show. I'm so grateful to be able to give something of value back to this community that has meant so much to me for so many years. If you enjoy the show, there are two great things you can do to promote the Farmer to Farmer podcast's continued success. First, leave a review on iTunes. Reviews on iTunes are the bread and butter of making this show available to an ever wider group of listeners and provides a real metric for the engagement of our listening audience. Second, let our sponsors know that you're listening to the show and that you appreciate their support of it. I couldn't put the time and energy into the show that I do week after week without their backing. And I love the suggestions I get for guests on the show. It's great to hear about the wonderful farmers out there. And many of our recent guests came about only because listeners like you took the time to visit farmer to farmer and fill out the contact form with a request to hear from a specific person. So if you see somebody at a workshop this winter or know a fantastic farmer in your neighborhood, or just want me to find somebody to address a particular topic, goat dairy was one of those and you want to hear them on the show let me know thank you for listening be safe out there and keep the tractor running